Hi, you're listening to the FAST Success Show podcast with Jeff Noble. Before you start today's episode, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think back all the way to when you were 19 years old. What were you doing? What kind of life were you leading? I can tell you what I wasn't doing. I wasn't doing what our guest today did, and that is ride their bike across America to raise FASD awareness. I did not do that. I don't even think I was able to match my socks properly at 19 years old. And today's guest rode 4,000 miles across the country. We talk everything about being a sibling to an individual with FASD, what life was like on the road, what lessons did he learn, and what lessons could we learn from him. So come join me and my guest today, Emmaus Holt to talk about his awesome FASD journey. Welcome to the FASD Success Show, the only podcast where you can get real-world information about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This show will help you create calm in the chaos, have hope for the future, and more importantly, save your sanity so you don't lose your flipping mind. Now, here's your host, caregiver turned world FASD educator, Jeff Noble. Welcome, welcome everybody to the FASD Success Show. I'm your host, Jeff Noble. Thank you so much for joining me, whether this is your first episode or your 78th episode. I am so glad you're here. I know how much precious your time is, especially if you are raising an individual with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This podcast is all about FASD success. It's about not only creating success, but celebrating success as well. And how do we do that? We do that by getting together once a week and listening to interviews from some people who are doing wonderful things in the FASD arena, whether they're a researcher, doctor, parent, individual on the spectrum, and in this case, a 19-year-old boy who rode 4,300 miles across America to raise awareness for FASD. It doesn't matter. It's all about creating success, and that's how we do it. And I always find that creating success went from listening to how others did it, how others are doing it, how are they thriving, how are they surviving, because this is tough. It's not an easy thing to do. In fact, as a former foster parent. I have siblings on the spectrum. It is tough. It is, in fact, the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my entire life. So that's why I'm dedicated to doing this. That's why I'm sitting here in front of a microphone with nobody around except for my dog, Sierra, which it was National Dog Day this week. I have two, uh, Sierra and Rigsby. They are both Rottweiler mixes, and I love them to death, just like I love you to death, and just like I am so glad that you are here. And hey, listen, if you like this show, can you do me a favor, and can you subscribe? Uh, Two things happen. One... For you, you get the episode right away. Like as soon as we drop it, we upload it. It sends it right to your phone. And so you could get the brand new episodes. You don't have to wait. You don't have to go looking for it. And two, it helps us because what it does is it tells the algorithms, the beboops in the back with all those tech companies that says, hey, if somebody is looking for information on fetal alcohol, if somebody is looking for support, if somebody is looking for success, they're going to mention our show. And then that way more people listen. And then that way more people get help. And listen, it works. It works when you do that. I was just looking at the stats. I'm I'm not a massive stats guy, and maybe I should be a little bit more, but, and I was just checking out our stats, and it was telling me that we've had over 95,000 
unique listeners to this show. It blows me away. It just blows me away. And thank you. And thank you so much for your support. So if you can subscribe, that's excellent. If you're looking for more support, we have a closed Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash FASD forever, where we have over 3000 caregivers, frontline workers, and some individuals on the spectrum who've heard it all and can give you some great feedback. So you don't have to feel alone. You don't have to be judged because as I've talked about before, isolation is absolutely the enemy and you know if you want to help us out even further you're more than welcome to support the show if you are so inclined you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash fasd success and that way you could support the show and what we do is send out a nice little email a little message every single week because we do the top five takeaways from every single episode and we just send that to you and it is so helpful for us for example you know the first month we did it we were able to hire an editor who makes me sound a lot more competent and capable than uh, sometimes i really am now speaking of isolation speaking of loneliness my guest the interview today dealt with a lot of that this is a young man at 19 years old Emmaus Holder who went across the country again you know at 19 years old I did not have my shit together I didn't even have anything together it's amazing to see what this guy is doing so we're going to jump to this interview right away because it's amazing it's just amazing you know people shit on the next generation but we shouldn't because they're powerful and they're doing some great things and we want to make sure that the folks that are coming up i could say i'm i'm the veteran now and there was one time there uh, you know i was the new kid on the block when it came to advocating and talking about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder we have to nurture these guys we have to give them the opportunity because that's how we're going to take a step forward and uh, what a journey that this guy has been on he's a 19 year old college student you know he's bike 4300 miles across america just to like put that in perspective, you know, this is, we have a worldwide audience here. 4,300 miles is 6,920 kilometers. That is insane. 6,920 kilometers, man. Okay. Let's get to the tail. He's just a young man. He's 19 years old. I know he plays in band and he's a college student, uh, but he went on this epic journey. So I'm ready. If you're ready, let's go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Here I am, our own version of Forrest Gump. And I mean that in terms of an epic adventure. Emmaus Holder, thank you so much for joining the show. I really appreciate it, pal. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you know it, man. There was all the talk on social media and especially in our world, in the FASD world. And while I wanted to have you on the show, I wanted to have you now after you got back i'm sure you've been sleeping the whole time i'm gonna ask all about that stuff but i'm really excited about this and like i said before i'm just gonna ask you questions that are uh, top of mind for me because that mm -hmm. is an arduous journey i don't know if i'm dating myself or if you haven't seen it but did it feel like the lord of the rings when you were done when you returned to the shire or what there was definitely some pretty good comparisons there i'm a huge lord of the rings fan myself okay so good okay we're already good. buddies then Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay, let's start at the beginning just a little bit. Okay, first of all, yeah. where are you from? Um, I live in Pittsburgh, North Carolina now. Okay. I was born in Wisconsin and we've moved around a lot, but that's where I'm at right now. So I got it. I got it. How old are you? I'm 19 years old. Gosh, man. Okay, so what is your, how did you get started with FASD? What's your involvement? Yeah, so I have two brothers that have been in my family for four years now that both have an FASD. We adopted them through the foster care system. They are 13 and 14 years old. And so 
dealing with the challenges and kind of working the system with them and learning how difficult and strenuous and sometimes rewarding it can be. That's how I got into the FASD world. That's where Oh, okay. Let's go there just a little bit. Again, I'm not trying to go deep in all these things, but it's we I think about the listener and siblings is is one of the biggest subjects I'm sure along your venture you, you heard about that. Did you have any understanding of FASD before your brothers came? I didn't even know what it was really. My mom knew somewhat what it was because she's an OBGYN and so she's had some experience with it, but it was never something we had talked about. When they came into our family, my mom knew pretty early on that they had an FASD. We didn't have the diagnosis yet. And so it was more of a learning journey from when they became a part of our family. I had no idea what it was beforehand. Yeah, you're being very diplomatic. So it was crazy, right? You're like, <laughs> WTF, what is going on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and let's talk about that just a little bit, like in terms of what were some of the symptoms that, you know, we call them symptoms because they're not behaviors. It's not willful, purposeful. They're beautiful right. boys, I'm sure. But yeah. what were some of the things happening that you were like, what the F is going on? Yeah. So right from the beginning, they were lying to everyone. They were stealing things. If we had left a bag out of candy out on the counter in the morning, it would be empty. And they denied that anything happened. When they were frustrated or angry, there was a lot of escalation. That got a little bit worse as they got a little bit older. But even at the beginning, there was a lot of anger and frustration, verbal abuse, shouting, all kinds of things. Confabulation is a big thing in our house as well. And so basically the whole works. They've stolen a lot. <laughs> they've yeah. taken money. They've found inappropriate music and movies and downloaded those, ordered things on my mom's Amazon account to our house. <laughs> and you're like, what is yeah. going on, man? Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Okay, because what you've done, obviously, you've had to, I don't want to put words on your mouth, but your paradigm was maybe like bad kids. Were these like bad kids? Because I'm sure it's frustrating, especially the escalation that's probably verbal and, and sometimes maybe physical, if not to a person, but property. So that's still yeah. hard on your nervous system as well. Angry, I'm sure. So what did you do? Where did this paradigm shift happen? Because you don't bike across the United States because you aren't fond of someone. Yeah. And if you are like, then you, you are a serial spite person and <laughs> that's a, that's something on its own. Right. Yeah. So I think the paradigm shift kind of starts with the foundation that my family has set up for me and my other siblings who are neurotypical. I was raised in a loving family and they made it very apparent that I was cared for in every situation. And so I was old enough to the point that with my other two siblings who are now eight and 15, so it's eight, 13, 14, 15, and then I'm 19. I was able to kind of instill in my siblings the fact that just because they weren't able to spend as much time with us that we were loved any less. And so I think having that foundation was critical to just having such a loving family and having such a strong foundation. I think going into taking care of them, it was, there was a lot of frustration, a lot of anger and a lot of confusion. And sure. so I think having my mom know so early on what was going on and being able to get that diagnosis pretty early was a big point of clarity, I think, for my whole family in the fact that we kind of knew where some of these behaviors were coming from. And on top of that, there's all the trauma and things from their childhood and mm -hmm. all kinds of other things that are also very difficult to deal with, attachment issues. Yes, such. sir. But it was knowing where it was coming from was a big point of clarity. And then for me personally, I, I'm very particular about how things are done. I like them to be done right. And so it was really hard for me to let a lot of the small battles go and not nitpick because uh, I'm, I'm very, very perfectionist in mm -hmm. the things that I do. And so that was a big challenge for me. But I think after a while of living with them, working with them, finding things that they enjoy, finding things that they're passionate about, and not only seeing those chaotic explosions was, I think, 
the shift for me, noticing that they are people and not mm-hmm. just how would I put it? Not a disability, like a labeled yeah. as yeah, as a term, right? And so yeah. then put under this umbrella of only being a certain thing, like in a box a little bit. Right. That's interesting you say that because also then when you start to see the aggression or their escalation, then you could start to see where it was coming from. And yeah. you could see, oh, this is the end result of blank. Right. Right. So this has been permeating and now I could see it and you look at it differently. But now that I hear that you have four other siblings, it's starting to make more sense to why you took a 4,000 mile bike trip. So you're the babysitter and then you're like, I got to get out of here. I get it. I probably (laughs) do. You were a little bit extreme for my taste, you know, a road trip with friends like us normal folks do. But okay, that's cool. That is that. And it's important to talk about that because they are more than that and you're right trauma and attachment it all changes the way they approach things then your paradigm shifts and again if i'm putting words in your mouth let me know and then do you see how others are reacting to them without being fasd informed how maybe you reacted to them is that what sort of spurred this i think for me personally i wasn't always around them as much because I'm a little bit older. So in in my home life, I was able to interact with them a lot. And so seeing the difference between how I understood them before and after understanding why it was happening was interesting. But I think my oldest brother, who's 15, was in the same grade as the oldest one. And so he was with him at home, at school, everywhere. And I think for him in particular, he was able to see how much other kids were bullying him and making fun of him and sometimes taking advantage of his disabilities and his, yeah, a lot of the things that were happening there. And so he struggled a lot, I think, with dealing with some of the ramifications of that at home, but he was also able to see it much more clearly at school, being so close to him, being in a lot of the same classes. And it's quite stark how different it is, how different people treat you when they actually understand why you behave in a certain way, why you have these just actions that you take. And so hearing from him a little bit how that went and then just, again, just seeing it in daily life when I'm around with him and how they interact, how other people interact with them. It's very interesting and in some some situations very difficult. Yeah, agreed. You can know everything about the disability, but it still could be frustrating because you're constantly battling logical thinking. You're always having to check yourself. You've had beliefs, you know, your whole life. And like you said, you have certain ways of doing things and they're constantly clashing with that, even though they don't mean to. You learned a lesson at a young age where I work with some parents that are twice or three times as old as you learning about the battles, the less battles. Is this important right now? You know, am I prepared to deal with the the aftermath of trying to get this right and expectations? And that's really solid point. So then what happened? Like, where does this idea come up where you're like, I got to do something or I want to do something? Because that's pretty extreme, right, dude? Like, right. Yeah. So I, I'm an avid cyclist. I came from a running background in high school and I started triathlon my senior year of high school. And so from there, I just started riding my bike more and more and I loved it. And I'm also a very adventurous person. We're a very adventurous family. We do a lot of hiking and backpacking and such. And so I wanted to take a bike tour somewhere. I wanted to explore over the summer. Uh, and I was thinking about potentially doing a trip across Europe just to explore Europe. Sure, man. Not related to FASD yet. And so with COVID, that kind of shut everything down because of all the restrictions of overseas travel. And so from there, I thought about what else I could do. And I thought, why not do a trip across America? Because America is pretty cool. And there's a lot of really fun stuff here. And so as that idea started to build, as I started to talk to my family, a few of my friends about 
just the possibilities of me doing this trip, I wanted to put a purpose behind it. I wanted to have a reason to keep riding every day. And something that's very important to me, as I'm sure is evident in what I did, is I wanted to advocate for FASD and I wanted to talk to other people about their experiences with it. And so what was the ratio of people said that you were crazy to go ahead and do it? I would say there were probably at least 10 people that said I was crazy. Yeah, I'd be in that camp. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and almost everybody I met on the road thought I was crazy. Just like on the side of a gas station with a bunch of bags on my bike. Like you're crazy. <laughs> yeah, man. So, but obviously, you know, your parents were uh, into it. Your mom was into it. You go ahead and you decide to do this, but still a lot of unknowns, like where you were oh, going to yeah. stay and, and how you were going to put this together. You knew where the ending was. Did you train harder for this? I'm sure it was more riding than maybe you've done. So my training was actually really interesting because I wasn't in the U.S. until about three weeks before I took off. I spent the majority of the beginning of the year from January to April in different parts of Africa. I was in Tanzania in January, and then I was in Djibouti from February to April. Of course you were. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, from there, there's not access to really good bikes in Djibouti. And so it is very hot, which was very good for heat training because I ended up being in the Mojave Desert at the hottest time in like American history, which was pretty ridiculous. But aside from that, I did a little bit of running, probably not as much as I would have wanted to in preparation for this. Mm -hmm. And then when I got home, most of my preparation was making sure that my bike was in working order and it was in a good enough position that I wouldn't have any like muscular issues aside from just fatigue. And so I think the longest ride I did before the trip started was probably 60 miles. I did a few like 45 mile rides, but day one was a 130 mile day. And so I kind of just dived in the deep end there, hoping that I had enough in the bank to keep going until my legs caught up, (laughs) which they ended up doing after about a week. (laughs) My gosh, man. I'm just thinking about your poor ass that first day. (laughs) How's that? How's that work, dude? I'm being honest. Like I'm thinking if I'm sitting there i spent 10 minutes on a bike seat like was there extra padding is it like biker padding and how does that work and yeah, i know so- it's a weird question but here they come so get <laughs> no, no, used to it's it it's good yeah so the saddle that i use is one that i've broken in so it fits pretty well to my my butt if you will and then i also use cycling shorts that have a chamois inside so they have a little extra padding in the shorts and then on top of that the saddle that i use is a split nose saddle which means that like instead of converging at the front and like putting all your weight on your soft tissue like this way it doesn't like split out like this. It's like, I don't have it. It's like downstairs, but on a normal saddle, it like comes. Yeah, in I get that part. Yeah. It's just like, instead of having that one point, it has two points that basically just sit underneath your sit bones. So I'm not sitting on any soft tissue or any like nerve endings. It's just my butt bones, um, yeah. which isn't really that painful as long as you have a comfortable like position. Otherwise, as long as you're in so I didn't really have any issues in that front because With that's the butt, eh? so I'm going to just go back a little bit because that was a little impulsive question. Yeah, but yeah. how'd you plan where you were starting to where you're going? Was there any significance of that or was it cool places you want to wanted to see? So I started planning about two months before I actually took off while I was still in Djibouti. I started emailing and talking to as many people as I possibly could. Talked to a few people at NoFaz, talked to a few people at Proof Alliance, and then in a few support groups that my parents are involved in. And I ended up contacting just a few people that were able to help me network, knowing I wanted to start in North Carolina, just because that's where I'm, I'm at. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really want to take a plane flight initially. Yeah, um, yeah. 
just like start almost right. out your front door start kind of deal. almost yeah. yeah yeah so we ended up starting in Topsail and then Topsail Beach North Carolina which is just on the coast because I wanted to go ocean to ocean because that's I think that's something that's like really meaningful and like tangible to pretty much everybody aside from yeah this, and like, Forrest really Gump did it right exactly yeah <laughs> like so yeah you see how we tie I had to tie that in there okay cool so the and the mission was to what bike from place to place advocate along the way was there to do something what was the point you know what i mean i'm not trying yeah, like yeah. what was the goal along the journey i guess that's mm-hmm. so the trip it was partially for just advocating but i also did about two dozen interviews for kind of getting the social emotional side of both taking care of people with FASD and living with yeah. FASD and so right now, and probably for the next semester, for the next six months or so, I'm going to be working on like adjusting all the transcriptions and such, and then analyzing all those interviews to hopefully write an article that'll be published in some peer-reviewed journals and such, just about kind of the sociology of FASD. Got and it. That's like, and so, so almost like a, a study a little bit. Oh yeah. Okay. That is cool. And so how much did the equipment weigh on your bike? Like how much were you pulling? Or in so this the, case, riding with. Right. So the bike and everything on it together weighed about 50 pounds. And the bike itself is about 14 or 15 pounds. So everything I was carrying was about 35 pounds. And I can run through the, the gear list if you want. I had like two sets of cycling clothes, which is cycling shorts and then a long sleeve shirt, just because it's easier to not put sunscreen on your forearms and everything. And then I had two pairs of shorts, a pair of uh, short sleeve shirts, and then... Oh, let me stop you right there. Two pairs of shorts. That's risky. What if you had some bad gas station beef? Oh, that would be bad. (laughs) So you really, you know, maybe not. I don't know. Did you have any? Did you deal with any of that? Like from just different cuisine and like, oh, God. Yeah, I had had some pretty crappy food on the trip just because it was gas station. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that stuff's the worst. Yeah, I never I never really had any intestinal issues, like nothing going on down there, which is I'm really grateful well, for. You got, yeah, like it's <laughs> like, what would you do, right? You're right, yeah. in the middle. I guess you would do uh, you have to do what you have to do. I know we're keep going back to this. I got more. I'm, I'm, a, I'm more diversified <laughs> yeah. in my questioning besides your oh, yeah. your butt and your, your, your digestive <laughs> track. Right. But those are things you I think of, like, I guess maybe right. I'm a weirdo, but I have to think of those things while I'm out there, too. Like, y- you know, you like I went everything. on. Tour. I did a tour through Canada and the U.S. Uh, I think about yeah. 2015. I drove and I flew. So like, right. don't get it. But still, I'm driving through the desert and those hot tacos from Sunoco or wherever it was. <laughs> what am I going to do? Right. That's going to be tough. Right. So similar, but obviously not the same. You said people would ask you, obviously, because, you know, you're stopping and, and people are seeing what you're doing and they're curious. Mm-hmm. So let's role play a little bit. What would they say? Would they say, hey, where, where are you going with all that? I'm going, I started in North Carolina. I'm going about 4,000 miles and I'm going to end up in LA in a few weeks. So, Oh, cool. Are you, are you just taking a trip or like, is what are you doing it for? Yeah. So uh, I'm raising awareness and doing research for FASD, which is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I have some family members that have this disability and it's something that's not talked about enough. And yeah. <laughs> Do they... Because I'm just trying to think of my own, when I say fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, do you get the, some people shaking their head, but they have no idea. Some people doing the slight turn. I know you can't see it for the audience, but you know, they cock their head to the side. Would they engage more? Would you find that then you're having these conversations with interested, with people who are interested and other people will be like, I don't know what that is. 
Yeah. Every once in a while, I get a person that has heard of it or worked with like people with disabilities or they're like a teacher or something and they've heard FASD somewhere. Um, but normally people don't know what it is, even people who've heard of it. And so either people are re- very curious as to what it is and basically how. Would you stay and talk or would you say, check this? If you want more info, check this out. I don't know. Did you have like a card or did you drop a website? Normally I was in like gas stations and such. So I had like about two or three minutes and I had an elevator pitch pretty much down packed. Oh yeah. At the end, I'm so. sure you're just <laughs> rifling just it. Through it. Yeah. And so in that sense, I was able to sit there and talk to them for a little bit. At the end, I would normally give people my name and if they wanted to look me up, that would be the easiest way to do it because I have a pretty unique name and it's pretty easy to find. So if you can remember. Yeah, that. not easy to say by just reading, right. by the way. I'm just saying that. I'm just saying <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so from there, I would get groups of people that would either be very curious and very interested. But there was also another group of people that like after I said that and talked about like alcohol exposure and how that affects people, there's kind of just the stigma surrounding it. So you could visibly see some people get very uncomfortable when we were having that conversation, like just their whole face kind of dropped just a little bit. Not that they don't necessarily want to be there, but they just don't know how to react when you're talking about something like that. And so, yeah, because now you're going deep, right? So now right, it's yeah. their own family. It's right. that's what I mean. It cuts core into even generational people oh, yeah. about their looking at their own drinking and yeah. all of that. I understand how you could get some of those reactions as well. Now, when you're going from place to place, because I want to talk about some of the people you met and all that goodness. Yeah. But are you listening to music? Are you just having your own thought time, what's going on in these long halls in between stops? Yeah, so there's a little bit of everything in there. Having so much time alone is both very beneficial in some senses, but also sometimes kind of go insane. (laughs) Yeah. And so I would listen to some music. I also listened to five or six audiobooks on the trip, which is really nice. And then I had a lot of phone calls on the trip. I, I could just talk to people that I haven't talked to in a long time. Oh, yeah, I, that's true. Yeah. When I'm walking my dogs, not the same thing, but sometimes I'll call my dad just, you know, because you're just yeah. walking. I got it. OK. Right. But you're not going. <laughs> yeah, I'm just. <laughs> that was, or right. were you doing that? And too bad I, for them. That only really happened when I was going up really big climbs, <laughs> which normally I would just I wouldn't call anybody. And I wouldn't really sometimes I'd listen to something, but normally I just put my head down and grind up. Like going up over the Rockies and stuff like that. Um, With no real mountain training, you're going right. through the Rockies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So sometimes music. What was your go-to song if uh, shit sucked or you needed just a little, <laughs> little blast of energy? What's, what's yeah. the tune? So there's this one song by a band called the Arcadian Wild, which is this bluegrass band called Hey Runner. And it's just this really groovy bluegrass song that just like hits really hard and so- yeah so we're just gonna play a clip right now because we have okay. an awesome not me but that's the magic of editing so yeah. we'll, we'll run a <laughs> we'll run a clip so yeah, the chorus keep, is amazing but uh, that's okay <laughs> so it was the words in the chorus that that sort of moved you so the, the words of that song aren't like super coherent if you if you'd like but yeah it's like listening it's to pearl jam music yeah. yeah yeah i get it if you ever listen to pearl jam i don't know if i'm dating myself oh, yeah. but pearl you jam. can you go <laughs> right so maybe a little little like that bluegrass is badass for sure oh, yeah. I, i'm looking on your your profile and mm-hmm. we talked about the mountains somebody yeah. helped you through that people were riding with you can you tell me that story so- 
Yeah. So there are a few times where I met a few people. The longest I rode with someone was for about an hour. There was one post on Facebook that I put where I went over Monarch Pass, I believe it was, which was the highest point in my trip. And that one section of road is where five or six cross-country routes overlap. So I had lunch with a group of guys that were going uh, west to east on US 40 and US 50, I think. I can't remember exactly what roads it was. But so I like stopped at the top and I saw this van with a bunch of cyclists and I stopped and said, hey, and uh, had lunch with them. And then once I got down the other side of the mountain at this gas station, I met five or six other cyclists that were also going like the opposite direction of me, most of them. But I was just able to talk to them, which was really reassuring. And then Right after that, I ended up running into this guy who was in the middle of a race called the Tour Divide, which is an ultra cyclist race on the Continental Divide. And it just so happened that their route overlapped with my route for about 16 miles. <laughs> uh. So it was like, it ended up being so perfect. And there was also like road construction right before that section. And so they made the bikes wait to the back. So we had this completely open stretch of road with no cars whatsoever for about an hour but I got to ride with this guy and talk to him and then he turned off and then I kept going. So that was a really fun day in the fact that I got to the highest point of the whole trip up at Monarch Pass at 11,300 feet. And then I just got to talk to other people doing similar journeys, which is very reassuring for me who's been by myself for most of the trip. But yeah. So that was like, you're like, this is badass. This is cool. I'm glad I'm doing this. Like FASD is a spectrum. What about the other spectrum? Was there a place where you're scared shitless? I think there was really only one day that I had a pretty bad day. I can remember it very distinctly. It was sure. actually July 4th. <laughs> I yeah. was in Escalante and Staircase National Monument, which is in southern Utah. And it had been pretty hot that day. And I had two, I had had one mountain pass and then a few grueling climbs. And so that day kind of just took everything out of me, both physically and mentally. And I was just done. I was supposed to go like 120 miles that day. I ended up going about 90, which... In itself, I felt decent about afterwards, but like, yeah, dude, yeah. In comparison to what like I wanted to do, I was fair. Deep. That's fair. You had expectations yeah. of yourself. That's right. that's okay, and you wanted to, but then you quickly adjusted when, yeah. and that's not just just oh just ninety miles, but right. like you said, through the, some extreme terrain and conditions. Yeah, yeah. So that day, I. I, I ended up stopping at a gas station trying to find a hotel or something, which in the western part of the country, there's a lot of public land. And so I'd be camping a lot, but I knew that I wouldn't really have the energy to set up my tent or anything. And I was just like really struggling to get any further. And so I found this hotel like 10 miles down the road, not 10 miles, it was more like five miles. But one thing that's really another really difficult slight tangent difficult thing about this trip is a lot of hotels won't give you a room unless you're 21 and so i'd have to call ahead to like three or four hotels to see if they had rooms to see if they would even let me stay there and so trying to figure out all those logistics from a gas station where i'm just like completely downcast and frustrated with myself yeah after not getting where i wanted to get um, yeah and, and so you're tired was, too yeah exactly. you know and sore and want to sleep and yeah so it's tough to regulate your emotions when you're under that that's human of you let's talk about some of these people because i'm sure that was a big old shot in the arm when you would go to a family who was so appreciative of you tell me about some of the people that you stayed with i'm not going to drop who was the best who was who's <laughs> had the worst cooking i'm not going to do that to you yeah. but just tell me about that experience about meeting some people and some families yeah. So I think it's really cool staying with other families that are experiencing something similar to what my family is going through. One of the things that I found on this trip is kind of how isolating and sometimes debilitating living with FASD is and living with people that have an FASD is. And so having experienced that myself and like having all of the trauma of living through 
these difficult times as well as being isolated with COVID. It's like honestly pretty spectacular to see kind of the chaos that goes on in other people's houses and to be able to talk to them about that experience and just relate. And so another like amazing part of this trip is how hospitable so many people are. Yeah. Uh, and so everyone would take care of me in ways that I can't even explain or understand. Like they would do everything they possibly could to make sure that I had everything that I needed without any obligation or without me even asking. And so time and time again, especially in these homes that are dealing with FASD, like they would take the effort to make sure that I was doing okay. And I was able to see that my family is not doing this by ourselves. And obviously every single family is quite different. And so that was really cool to see. It was like, as my parents are divorced, so it was like constantly going over to the other parents and they yeah. got up the other parent, you know what I mean? And so everyone was, <laughs> maybe yeah. not, to, but sort of in contacts yeah. like that, right? <laughs> yeah, where everyone's just laying out the uh, red carpet. And then you got to see them live and see other families dealing with, you know, I, although it's a spectrum, dealing with similar things. Somewhat, if I could draw some from experience and thinking when I would travel, you know, I'd be exhausted or there'd be dinners and functions. Were they just let you chill or did you feel obligated to stay up with them? Or were you like, I got to do, I got to, like, it's been good folks, but I got to. So I think every day, pretty much what would happen is I get to a house. It was a family that I'd be interviewing or talking to about their experience. And so I'd normally get in, I'd take a shower and get my stuff situated, just basically bring my bags into a room where I'd have a bed. And then I'd go out, depending on what time I got in, they will either have already made dinner and we'd eat dinner together, which was really cool just to see all the different family dynamics, or we just sit and basically conversation would ensue and not necessarily that I was obligated to do it. I was just really interested and invested. And so I really like learning about people. And so that's kind of what this project was about. Yeah, no, that's fair. What was your average sleep in terms of schedule? You're laughing like less than six, less than five, six hours a night. It depends a little bit. Some days I'd sleep in if I was like completely exhausted from the day before, especially when I had someone to talk to, given that I'd never met them before. And yeah, that's kind of this like traveler dumping, like if you see someone that you know, you're not really going to see again, you basically tell them all your problems and everything. And so that's a really curious thing that I really enjoyed talking about and like just seeing happen. And so there's just this overwhelming amount of information that happens all at the same time. And then that tends up taking a, a lot of time to get through. And so I'd normally be up pretty late. <laughs> yeah. Um, and not for lack of good conversation. It's like amazing stuff. That yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And then a shot in the arm in terms of energy of seeing, tangibly seeing the difference you were making. And I'm sure how thankful people were that that you were doing, in fact, what you're doing. Yeah, it, it really is amazing. Now, is it, when you talked about, I just want to reference a post you made about, so it says, I'm just going to read it if that's okay. So it says, 4,300 miles of speeches, speechless. Weeks of riding experienced the inexplicable hospitality of strangers seeing the surreal beauty of the countryside and hearing stories of a nation along the way i cannot even begin to explain my immense gratitude the love and support from so many of you have been absolutely amazing the trip has shaped me in so many ways i'm stopping there what do you mean how has it shaped you like uh, you came home like uh, like a vietnam vet you know and just like stare at the wall and say god i've seen things like how, <laughs> how has it shaped you I think I'm in a very formative time of my life. I'm a college student. I'm 19 years old. And so 
I'm still trying to figure out what on earth I want to do with my life. And so I think on this trip, having to do everything by myself, carrying my entire life with me and having to go out, if I wanted human interaction, I had to go get it. And so learning how to talk to people, how to learn about things. And on top of that, how I myself respond to challenges and difficulties physically, as well as mentally was a very formative experience. And I also had like hours on end to think about the things that I want to do with my life, the things that I are important to me. There were several realizations along the way, but I think one of the biggest ones is the fact that there are many things in my life that will just have to wait for a time or for the effort that I'll have to put into it in the future. And so even though I have so much time to think about it and to work through these things now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to get answers. And so in that sense, like it taught me a lesson in patience. It taught me self-control and self-reliance in some senses, but it also taught me how to set aside my pride and accept the help and hospitality that so many people so openly mm, bingo bingo and i think that's a great lesson for caregivers to learn right accepting help is not easy to do especially when you're like a parent and your job is supposed to be able to manage and raise individuals but that's tough yeah. and so you need that help even that lesson will serve you for the rest of your life it yeah. served me later in terms of building my company and doing this full time that i couldn't do it all alone because the messaging is in order to be successful you have to be able to do it on your own and that's just a fallacy it's just it's not just not true we're all good at things we're all weak at things and so accepting help just actually makes us better and i think that is a fantastic thing so is it almost could we say like a journey from boy to a man or a young adult into a young man what would you say that like you definitely are changed I think I definitely have changed. I went into this a lot more, I think, naive to a lot of the challenges and things that I anticipated I'd experience. Now, having been through them, I feel much more seasoned in myself and I feel much more grounded in in who I am and who I want to be and how I want to impact the world around me. And so I think that's really cool. You mentioned you said it took me to some dark places that I never thought I'd come back from. Oh, yeah. That is dark. Dude, what did you mean by that? We don't have to visit that too much, but what did you mean? I think on top of the physical and emotional, like just exertion that this trip like brings out, Mm -hmm. go through a lot of emotional highs and lows. Your body is just completely torn apart and it causes you to be much more susceptible to sometimes extreme joy and sometimes extreme pain and frustration. So there were a few other times where I'd like, I'd be in the middle of nowhere. I'd be extremely frustrated with the way my legs were working that day or the the ground that I was riding on. There were a few really sandy trails that I wiped out on a few times just Mm. because it was really rough terrain and a few other things like that, that just like, if it happened on any normal day on like a 15 mile bike ride or something like that, it wouldn't phase me. But like some of these things on top of all the other strain that you're going through, it just tears you down sometimes as well as it can build you up just the same. Uh Mm -hmm. Um, but there were some times where I was very frustrated and had, it felt like I had nowhere to turn and I just had to get back on the bike and keep going. And so sometimes that was really, really difficult for me to do. But then as soon as I did, oftentimes a few moments later, a few minutes, sometimes a few hours, there weren't really that many long times, but 
it would turn around and I'd feel better. Was there times you were off the bike and, you, you know, I think of the movies where the people are in the middle of nowhere and you get off and you just let a tirade of F-bombs go and you just, <laughs> you're yelling at everybody, even though there's nobody. Was that, was that kind of what happened? Then you say after it, you get on your bike. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. Oh, fair. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. That happens to me several times a day and I would ride a bike, but that's how you'd kind of regulate. Sometimes you just let it out and then yeah. okay, hop on, start to feel better as you get right. going. Yeah, yeah. There were definitely some times where I was exploding with frustration and it was just like, oh, oh my I, goodness. <laughs> I could only imagine like the terrain is shit. You feel like crap. Your legs aren't working. I know what you mean by that. And just in terms of even just sport, you know, you don't have your legs as in hockey. That's what we would say. Right, you're yeah. trying and it feels like you're, I would be skating in quicksand. Uber frustrating. What was your longest day? Was it the 130? So I had three or four days that were about 130 and I had one day that was 140. I think I actually had like five days that were 130 and then one day that was 140. Yeah. But your butt wasn't sore. So yeah, at least you had that. Yeah. Now take me to maybe the last day or, you know, cause I'm sure that was an emotional day. How long did you ride on the last day? So the last day was about 50 miles. The day before was probably the last last drawn out day. And there were but, but you were ready, though, right? You're like, I'm doing yeah. this. I'm getting there. Enough is oh, enough. Yeah. I'm done. Right. <laughs> now, where was it? Set that scene up for me. I'm going to let yeah. you have the mic here and set the scene. Where was it? Who was there? And like, what were you feeling? Yeah. So the very last day I took off from this family's house and the day before I had I had had a pedal break, which was pretty ridiculous in the fact that it happened the day before the last day uh, and the pedal had gotten me 4,200 and what, like 10 miles out of 4,300. Yeah. And so the night before I had had to ride 10 miles on just like the center bar that goes through the pedal because it had broken. And so the, the very last day, I stop at a bike shop after about five miles, get a new set of pedals. I'm feeling really good, and it's pretty much all downhill to the coast. So it was a lot of just like, there was this sense that I was done already. Like, I'm like, I'm already there. I'm feeling so, so good, so relieved that like this is pretty much over. Like, I'm almost there. And as I got closer and closer, there was this one point I was coming through one section of LA where I really had to go to the bathroom, and I stopped at like four gas stations and none of them had a bathroom. I think this was in the middle of Compton. Like every single bathroom was either locked up or out of order. And I ended up going like another five or 10 miles, like another half an hour. Just clenching. Found one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh so, man. <laughs> and you're really like, looking. like last day thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's funny too, is it gets worse and worse. Your standards go lower and lower. You start looking, right. I could go there. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> uh, but okay. Which is awesome and hilarious, but unfortunate you're rolling through the hood in Compton and you, you know, you gotta go to the bathroom. That is quite the visual. Was there a time where you reflected on your whole thing or were you just like, I'm getting there. I'm getting off this bike. I want to see my family. As I got closer and closer, I had about 20 miles left after the whole bathroom trade. I got onto the road that I knew I'd be finishing on, and I knew it was about five miles long. And I could see the ocean on my little GPS computer. Like, I could see where it was. It was only, like, this far away on the map. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, my goodness. It started to, like, sink in that I was, I was starting to finish. There was one really big climb before it, like, dipped down, in, and it's, like, 
the sand dunes and the roads right along Manhattan Beach and a lot of the beaches in LA are pretty hilly. Oh, I've been there. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And so I ended up pounding up this last hill like, this is it. I'm right there. And like, I got to the top of it. I crested the hill. I had nothing but green lights for the next mile. Dove down into the pier. And then like, not my whole family, my mom, my sister, and my grandpa, who weren't even supposed to be there, decided the day before they were going to come out and see me finish. We're all standing there and they were like all screaming as I was coming down this hill. Oh my God. And as I pulled into this, like into the pier, I got off the bike. I, I was able to give everybody hugs and it was just a very surreal experience. It just kind of sunk in like you did it. And that was it. It was so cool. My dad was on the phone. A bunch of my other family members were on like a Zoom call that my grandpa had set up. So I was able to talk to a lot of people right there. And then a few other families that I had stayed with like a little bit further away in LA where I was going to be staying with in LA, that area, because my, my mom, my sister and my grandpa all had to go like back the very next day. And they were all there and it was very cool. Very, They were all very supportive. It was amazing. And then I was able to just let it sink in for a little bit. Um, yeah. And that was really cool. I would have bawled my brains out. Did you? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Was, I was definitely crying. <laughs> yeah, man. That's like, especially when you see your family, right? Like that's, you just crack. Yeah, no doubt. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Have you uh, been on your bike since? I have. So I think after a trip like this, you either hate riding your bike or you absolutely love it. And I know exactly where I stand. I, I love riding my bike. And so I took one day off the bike. <laughs> Well, I was in LA and I stayed in LA for about a week. Yeah, yeah. All the bags off, which was a big deal because that's like oh, you're flying like five now. pounds lighter, and I'm sure. flying. And LA has some really nice climbs, some really nice gravel roads and stuff. And so, once so you get you, out of the city, that is like you so voluntarily I just, went out again. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Since I've, since I've been back home, my dad and my oldest brother were working at a camp in Colorado with Nancy Thomas for some uh, reactive attachment disorder stuff. They ended up picking me up in LA and then we drove back home. And so I got home a few days ago. And since then, I haven't really ridden that much, but it's not for restful purposes. It's because I've been so overwhelmed with everything else that's been happening. Yeah, all, everybody wants a piece. <laughs> it's only been a couple days. Right. Would you do something like this again or... I think I absolutely would, honestly. Like, I kind of fell in love with this kind of travel, uh, this kind of research. I think riding your bike is the best way to see the country or any place for that matter. If you're going slow enough that you can really take everything in and you're doing it yourself, but you're also going fast enough that you can get places that you're actually moving from place to place. And so I think that's really cool. And it's the bike really brings people together in a way that not much else does. And so I think I definitely love riding my bike and I love talking to people and learning about people. And so yeah. I absolutely do something like this again. And you're, and you're really good at it. I want to just read part of the ending of your post here. It says, there is hope for the FASD community and the beast of a problem that surrounds it is slowly pushing away. Give me some context and how you came to that. Yeah. So both in living with my family and like dealing with the problems of FASD, but also it became very clear when I talked to other people about their experiences, as well as the complete lack of knowledge in the general community mm -hmm. and in the professional community. It became very clear that this is something that is absolutely massive and that no one is talking about right now. And so knowing how big of an issue it is and how prevalent it is for each person that has it and how like just painfully brutal a lot of the things that come with FASD are it's absolutely a beast as I think a lot of the problems that the newer gen like the younger generations are starting to try and push against are and so there are huge systematic issues that 
have a lack of knowledge in so many different places. And so from that sense, trying to push the agenda is a very difficult thing because it's hard to know where to start. And so with this, I think educating people is the biggest thing that we could possibly do. And I think that's the way to sort of tear down this massive systemic like issue and to educate people and to help them understand that this is a really big problem and that these people need care and that they deserve care and that they're not getting it. So I think there definitely is hope in that we're teaching people things are moving forward. But I also think that it's an absolutely massive wall to overcome this absolute beast. And so kind of poking that with little pinprick in places to see where it will start to fall apart is what I'm trying to do and what I think is starting to happen just from all different kinds of places in the FASD community. You are a bona fide badass, man. <laughs> what? Uh, I mean that. I, I mean that at 19, you know, I was just worried about where I was going to party on, on the weekend, <laughs> honestly. So that's, that takes a gravitas and a maturity that is well beyond your years. So kudos to you and your family as well. I'm not trying to have you look too much in the future, but what's next for you? Yeah. So I'm working on finishing my undergraduate degree. That's the first thing, as well as just this research. I think this is going to be a huge project for me on top of publishing this article. I think I want to get my master's degree or potentially a PhD. And then I'm thinking right now I want to get a professorship somewhere so that I can teach about sociology, psychology, about all the things that kind of are this issue kind of shrouds. And so in that sense, I want to teach as well as have the opportunity to do more research like this and learn about people and learn about the social emotional side of this huge problem and a lot of other problems that affects so many people. And so hopefully master's or PhD and then professorship and then more research and teaching. I have no doubt. You're 19. What else do you like? Fun stuff. What do you, what else do you like to do? Yeah. So I do a lot of reading. I, I'm very musical as well. Oh, yeah, I can see. If you can't see in the background, you got a couple of guitars there. Yeah. Uh, what kind of music do you like to play? I play a lot of jazz music. I play drum sets, piano. I'm also in the marching band at UNC. I play marching snare drum there. Oh, of course um, you do. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I play a lot of jazz music, some bluegrass stuff, some folk music, kind of a little bit all over the place in that front. Yeah. So very musical. I love to write music. I love to play music. Well, we'll have I, to hear I, some. Do you, yeah. do you, we'll have to hear some. Here's the burning question. What's your favorite movie? My favorite movie. Okay. I would have to go with The Princess Bride. I think uh, that is I think that is my favorite movie. Great storytelling. Andre the Giant is in it. You got the professional wrestling angle. You know, Fred <laughs> Savage, you know, I don't know. I've heard Peter. Sa no, it's not Peter. Anyways, Columbo with the with the crazy screwy eye detective. This has been awesome. Last thing yeah. where because you're a cool kid. People are going to listen to this or you're a cool young man. I'm going to say people are going to want to attach to you, get to know you, see what yeah. else you're doing and how they can help. Where can people find you and become your buddy? Yeah, so I, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, which my Instagram is just my name with an underscore between my first and last. So Emmaus underscore holder. And then my Facebook is just Emmaus holder. And then I have links on those pages to a web page that has a lot of information about my background and a lot more focused on this trip with some of my news interviews and some other resources there. So that's kind of where things cool. are right now. I don't really have any major projects moving forward. That's okay. That people are going to want to follow you, man. You're a young man. You got a lot of things to go and things to do. And I'm sure people will want to watch that progression. That, that's the best part of the, of the storytelling. We'll also have your links posted on our blog, uh, fasdsuccess.com slash podcast. And so if you want the link there, when you're done your article and you're in your study, will you come back and tell us what you learned about it? Oh yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, cool. You know, this is great. Thanks for being a good sport. I'm sure with all the new stuff you've done, nobody's asked you about your butt. So that's uh, <laughs> that's my point of pride right there. I'm going to hang oh, yeah. on that. <laughs> Mayus, my dude, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, it was cool. Oh, my goodness, Emmaus. That was so awesome. And one of my favorite interviews to do. You have a big future, my man. Just keep going. And I'm glad you are on our team. Uh, and thanks for playing along, you know, my poop humor. I really appreciate it. There's just a few things I wanted to go over before, again, we say goodbye until next week. You know, talking about what spurred his journey on and what changed his paradigm, because that's a lot of the work. And then once your paradigm is changed to see that these kids aren't mean, manipulative, unmotivated, like bad kids. Once you make that paradigm shift to see that this is a product of their environment, of their past, of the way their brain is put together. Once you make that paradigm shift, it's still tough to maintain that paradigm shift. It's easy for us to slip. But to hear some of the key points that he made was one, his parents gave him an excellent foundation and they let him know that there was plenty of love for him as well as the other kids. Now, this isn't to make you feel bad. I'm just stating the facts because I know it's tough, especially, you know, with the families that I work with trying to share that love when our guys can take so much from you. I just thought that was important what he said that his parents had laid that good foundation. And also important is that his mom had knowledge of FASD. So she was able to talk to him about it. Now, I know your kids don't always listen and they're, they don't, they might not be as together as a 19-year-old boy who went across, you know, the United States on his bicycle. But it is important to have such an understanding of FASD that you can explain it over and over and over again. And it's interesting that he gave a lot of credit to his other brother who had the kid at school, at home. And once he made that paradigm shift, he could see what was going on. And that's what usually happens when people want to advocate when they want to do something, they could see that these are beautiful individuals. You know, they're humans first. And it's important to, once you could see where the behavior slash symptoms are coming from and why they are presenting this way, it's just empathy should be the automatic response. But it's okay to get angry sometimes too. And I like what he said about picking his battles. I'm telling you, that is one of the biggest lessons that I find people and parents and caregivers who are successful with individuals on the spectrum, it is picking your battles. You hear, you heard them, you heard them say borderline OCD. I want everything perfect. I need a, a certain way. And when someone comes and disrupts that, that is a major values clash and you can get really upset letting things go. There's that funny meme on Facebook, right? Where it says, ah, pick your battles. No, no, you'll have to pick less than that. No, no, go on, put some battles back and pick some more and leave some more because it's true, man. What hill are you going to die on? And the fact that this kid knows this lesson at 19 years old, I think it's pretty incredible. And it's one that I am bestowing upon you that if you have a trouble with that because you are a perfectionist and you have a hard time letting things go, your life will be way easier when you do that. He also talked about finding their strengths and what they're interested in and talking to them about that and engaging them in that and seeing them as human beings, even in those moments when they have those chaotic explosions and not having those meltdowns define who they are because individuals are people first individuals on the spectrum are human beings just like you and i and they have feelings like just like you and i and we talk about all the things he went through during his ride 
and how he perfected his elevator pitch, which is something that if you're looking to do advocacy, you should do that as well. And it's a little jumbly at first. And then as you say it more and more, you get better and better and you're able to answer questions. Also, another good point is sometimes you're going to give people the message and they're not going to be ready to receive said message. So don't make yourself exhausted and blue in the face by explaining to a brick wall. They're just not ready yet. And so you'll have to swing back later. That's another important thing because we can get burnt out and just exhausted and wasting all this emotional energy because we are trying to convince people who just aren't ready to accept that information because it's a whole mindset shift in the way you see absolutely like the entire world. So it's a big deal. Also, when he just was having a shitty day, and you know he was off his bike and he was kicking it and screaming and yelling you could do that too it's okay to have those days where it's just you don't feel it you don't want to put on that brave face but just make sure you're doing it in a way that's healthy with no one around or you are exercising or you are driving in your car or you are you know as long as it's not directed towards your loved ones i think that's perfectly normal you aren't a stepford wife so that's an expectation that should be long gone you are a human being and you love and you you're scared and you're worried there's no such thing as a stepford wife and anybody who looks like that on social media or who you talk to is a straight up liar because families are chaos families are confusion and they are also so so worth it just like you you're so, so worth it, man. Now, you don't have to bike across the, the country to show advocacy. All you have to do is just talk to people, you know. Next week, we start FASD Awareness Month. So now you could you have a reason to just talk to everybody about it, to wear your shirts, to rock your red shoes, and just be proud that you are in a community that is the largest community when it comes to intellectual disabilities on the planet. So don't be shy. Let people know why you are doing amazing. And the fact that you're listening and that you want to get better and that you have bad days and you keep going and you might be scared, but you keep going. So make sure you join us. Again, I'll always say you don't have to do this alone. So come do it with us. Join our Facebook group. Be involved in the community. And again, if you also want, you could support our show. It supports this podcast that we are reaching 100 thousand listeners and that is all thanks to you and you can support the show by going to buymeacoffee.com slash fasd success it's not actual coffees okay it allows us to do things like take care of kevin and make sure that we can get you the five key takeaways from each and every single episode keep up the good work man keep grinding and keep hanging out with me I, we're buddies i love that you listen to me i love what you're doing and i love you so until the next time have a great week and we'll talk soon all right bye